have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Strangely and Friends, the podcast. It's me, Strangely. So, I saw the Game of Thrones finale, and I liked it. There, I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. This week, we've got a great episode. I've got a chat with my friend Cecilia, who I met as my bartender, who's actually this amazing mixed-media artist and just all-around general wonderful person. So that's coming up in a little bit. But for now, let's get into our first segment, Strangely Recommends in 200 Words or Less, including these 11. Who? Who imposed this rule? Does this aside count? I... Wait a minute. Fiddlesticks! The Songlines by Bruce Chatwin. It has been years since I've read a book and looked forward to reading it again. What begins as a travelogue among the Australian aboriginals turns into a meditation on what it means to be human, tying in paleontology, zoology, neuroscience, and a healthy dose of comic narrative along the way. Chatwin writes from a perspective of such gentle curiosity that one cannot help but feel swept along in his prose, aching to see if the next conversation proves enlightening. Only 80 words left. I find myself drawing a comparison to Neil Gaiman's American Gods, a work which builds cosmology around the land as a character and a force. But the song lines introduces readers to a world that beggars the imagination of even the greatest fantasy author. If, like me, you find the hand-waving at odd cultures in the background of fantasy novels to be the most interesting part you... and you wish the whole novel were just about that, then this is the book for you. The best part? It's all real. Awesome. So this is my chat with my friend Cecilia. Again, I'm still getting used to this whole interviewing someone thing, and I just generally try to let the guests talk as much as possible and throw in a few things here and there. I hope you enjoy this chat. I was so happy that Cecilia came up to my studio and was willing to talk about art and gender and clothing and fat we, we covered a lot of ground uh so i hope you enjoy this is my chat with cecilia welcome Hello. to my art studio for the listeners at home who have not experienced you as an amazing bartender <laughs> sort of introduce yourself i guess what what do you do what's your thing uh yeah so like you said i bartend at the honeymoon um on the slowest nights of the week so you can really get to know me. I'm there on Monday and Tuesday nights, so it'll, it'll be intimate. Um, I'm not a particularly great bartender, but I feel like I'm easy to get along with, and I like to let people try things and <laughs> make them special drinks, so that's fun. I'm also, though, I, um, I spend most of the week painting. I'm a painter, primarily. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you paint? Um, well, I actually have a website. It's cecilialister.com. Uh, and I also have an Instagram where there's like images of things, but I primarily paint images of people and clothing. Um, and a lot of it has to do with gender performance and dysphoria and then also euphoria and, um, 
kind of reclamations of your body and also of like this idea of home and what constitutes home if it's a place or if it's the people who you kind of build yourself around or if it's your actual body or your mind um or probably most likely a combination of all those things so it sort of dances around those themes did i i i think i saw something of yours like in a show of like it was like clothes it was like clothing on like a mannequin kind of a thing maybe i i made at one point like these like paper casts of my body that were looking like mannequins but it was made out of paper mm-hmm. um so that made yeah it... like a paper mache thing yeah totally yeah i think that that probably was me yeah i like took a plaster cast of my body and then i made like paper and paper castings of like my body parts and sewed them together into these like half formed mannequin kind of um figures and they faced paintings of clothing that's right yeah. i did get to see that yeah yeah that's cool i didn't yeah. know you got to see that yeah that was um that was like my bfa thesis show i did all that stuff and it was a really it was a pretty sad sort of series i was just like homesick as as hell and it ended up being a kind of bummer but the art that i've been making recently and um it was gonna be finished in just a couple of weeks actually it's like just a series of three but it's a lot happier um and I'm having a much better time with it. <laughs> what what makes you describe a piece of art as happy or unhappy? Is that your state of mind when yeah, you're creating it? Yeah, totally my state of mind. And I think that that comes across pretty clearly in the pieces. Like, you see it. Like, those paintings were pretty clearly... Like, there were lots of blue tones. It was, like, really flowy, kind of drowned objects. Like, clothing that had been submerged underwater. And these next pieces are... A lot less controlled like the technique is a lot looser and there's images of people who are not grieving I mean they're like they're eating their clothing that's like what these next paintings are of people eating their clothing and their colors are much brighter um, they're larger they just have like a more vibrant personality I think do you make work around the idea of clothing because clothing is so traditionally associated with gender in our society totally yeah i think uh probably most people have experienced this like their childhood feeling really uncomfortable with clothing especially like going through puberty like there's a time when most people feel pretty uncomfortable with their bodies and for me it had a lot to do with my gender like growing boobs and no longer being able to like not wear a shirt around wherever I wanted to go made me feel like I was being controlled and um, like it was unfair. And I was like, when I was a kid, everybody always told me that I was a tomboy. So that's what I thought, it, you know, I was like, I was a tomboy when I was a kid or whatever. And then growing up, like just always really thought that I would want to transition at some point. Like I knew that that was a possibility because I was raised in a gay community. So I was like, that's what I will do when I grow up. Um, and then eventually kind of discovered I could use clothing to sexualize myself and like get positive reinforcement by doing that. Like wear really feminine clothing and that happened like eighth grade. I started doing that just like, it was like day and night, like went to a new school, started wearing super short dresses from like wearing super baggy, like jeans and like sketchers and like t-shirts down to my knees every day. I went to like wearing these tiny little dresses and I got a lot of really good, like attention for it so then I was like using clothing in this different way 
um, rather than like hiding my body and like lots of people have gone through that you know and I think that it's just like clothing is so elevated like well beyond its functionality or even its ability to be artistic expression a lot of the times like we can't use clothing just to express ourselves it also identifies us in like these ways that we may want or not want and it's just like ridiculously layered and then the absence of clothing is also a layered thing like having a nude painting or being naked in public or at a party or just in your house like the people look at you and like are thinking about the absence of clothing on your body not about just like the fact of your body being its physical thing it's yeah it's just sort of this I don't know the more you think about it I just can totally spiral out of control which is why I paint about it <laughs> yeah what's well, describing it as the absence of clothing is really fascinating right to me, yeah as opposed to describing it as the presence of nudity yeah because I think especially in American culture where it's like nudity is so sexualized uh-huh. we don't really think about the fact that the absence of clothing is actually another source of discomfort because clothing is such a key ingredient in how we evaluate other people's status totally um I was in a sauna in Scandinavia a couple of years ago and met, met this dude and like we were hanging out and we were like just totally equals. Like mm-hmm. We both had kind of similar beards and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun. And then we like left and like we were, we were going to go get a drink together. And I remember walking out of the changing room and seeing him in the lobby and both of us just looked at each other and like he was definitely like, oh, when he saw Hmm. my clothes. Really? Dang. Because I was very clearly not of the same social strata as him. Like, I... And then suddenly you're like, which bar are we going to go to? Like, where are we going to fit in together? Yeah. And it became this whole thing that did not exist. Before. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think that that's like... That's really interesting. That totally is in line with what I've been thinking about and talking about. I personally feel more comfortable when I'm not wearing clothes. Like, even when I'm around people I don't know, mm-hmm. I, like, feel more comfortable when I'm naked just because, like, I feel like that's as much as I can do, you know? Right. I can be naked and, like, none of the parts about me that you can see when I'm naked are things that I chose. It's just the way that I am. And so it doesn't feel like I'm, like, trying to do anything, you know? Although, like, not to, right. like, <laughs> argue with you, but you do have some and tattoos. Tattoos, yeah, and piercings and a haircut. Yeah, no, totally. But, and I think that I also dress really crazy sometimes. Like, I dress in kind of outlandish outfits here and there, and sometimes I dress like I'm, like, wearing my sweatsuit or whatever. But, I, right, I think that it just, I bounce back and forth as my personality does high low like high highs and low lows because like I can't find a like comfortable middle point with performance and gender expression I like just kind of have to go with the flow I think do you think gender expression is performance I think that everything is performance as much as like, as long as we have eyes, you know, 
and like obviously there are lots of things you can't perform like you can't perform away your skin color or your perceived gender or lots of other aspects about yourself but you can you can manipulate your body in a lot of ways or I would I don't know if I would use the word manipulate because that is such a negative connotation and I think performance doesn't have to be negative and I think that that's why right I'm making happy art now is because I started dating somebody who performs so joyously and like I think through seeing that and being like so close with that like seeing them get dressed every morning and go through like the motions Mm -hmm. of performing and not being like a liar or fake or whatever these other words we ascribe to like performing you know putting Mm -hmm. on makeup or taking extra time to do yourself up I think that that like gave me a new kind of look on it and yeah I think that gender is performative especially in a place like Bellingham where there's so many different like publicly acceptable ways to be gendered you know (laughs) yeah it's it's something that I find strange in the sense that the plethora of options is is odd to me mm-hmm. not bad odd just surprising odd because mm-hmm. even I think how old are you I'm 22 okay sorry if, yeah. that, if that being revealed on the podcast is a problem we no, can I don't care out. At all. but uh, I guess what I'm getting at is I am 31. Uh-huh. And when I was in high school, there were two options. Mm-hmm. The three options, really. You were like a boy, a girl, or you are so confusing, we don't know what to do with you. Yeah. And to see now, like, people who are, like, 16, 17, 20, just being like, I am a polytriabinate, gender, mm-hmm. whimsical fuckery, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just okay among mm-hmm. their peers. Like, it's... it's it's becoming the non-issue that I really want it to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it, it is just one of those things where, like, if we all stop making it such a big deal, it won't be such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, like, Bellingham has such a plethora of options for people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, like, it's really beautiful and it's a really... It's really good for a lot of people who need those options. I also found personally when I was kind of coming to this like climax in my adult life a couple years ago of feeling just like so uncomfortable with myself um, and my gender and like deciding like, oh, I can see this like non-binary as an option. Like I could choose that for myself. Um, I didn't want to like leave my sort of like my I feel like being a woman is also sort of like an identity like it's sort of like a tribe you know like you are a part of this like positive cult or negative I guess if you don't want to be a part of it of people who like kind of have your back in this way and I was raised by a lot of women and I felt anxious about like leaving that group and also like othering myself by being uh like constantly having to to adjust people when they misgendered me and like feeling like I needed to live up to the expectation of being non-binary, like dressing feminine would be like betraying that new identity or something. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even things that try and subvert the system, like come with their own 
baggage. People just have baggage. And that's why we make art, right? right. <laughs> you know, that saying, you know, that even the things that subvert, st- or, you know, in a positive way, still yeah. come with baggage. Like, someone once told me, no matter what you do, 10% mm-hmm. of people are going to hate your guts. Oh my god, that's such a hard thing to come to terms with. It's so true, though. I hate it when people don't like me. I'm like, why? Why not? Like, let's talk about it. I could yeah. make you like me. <laughs> I could... Yeah, that... It's... It's such a thing, though, like, to, to, like, engage with the fact that, like, you will never be beloved by all. Yeah. Like, one of the, one of, I think, the positive aspects of sort of this um, modern culture where heroes are being exposed as garbage humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's obviously positive that we're talking about things like the Me Too movement and that, mm-hmm. you know, people are being believed and listened to. But a, another sort of positive of that is the fact that we're starting to realize that nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of having to come to terms with that. And uh, I think you can take that in your own personal life in one of two ways. You can either be like, well, shit, there are people out there who hate me and that sucks. Or you can be like, there are people out there who hate me and they're not relevant. Yeah. You can shoot, because the second part of that thing my friend told me is no matter what you do, 10% of people are going to hate you, but you can choose which 10% of people those are. Yeah. And that's, that's actually a very empowering thought, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like you're not going to be able to please everybody. And if you were trying to, you probably would end up making a lot more enemies actually. Right. Like it's like nothing's more frustrating than somebody who's always on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. It's like in Hamilton. Have you... No, I haven't. Not oh, just his his primary, like, thing that gets stuck in his craw with his antagonist, Aaron Burr, uh-huh. the, which is the guy who ended up shooting him, is that Burr never had any principles. Like, Burr is yeah. trying to rise to power, but he's trying to rise to power by being friends with everybody and never standing for anything. Mm-hmm. And the, the big line in the show is, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? Mm. And it, Hamilton shivers. Right? Yeah. Or or like uh um I mean it's in the Bible too. Jesus is like before me or against me, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. Like I mm-hmm. It's like Jesus almost has harsher words for people who are like ambivalent, ambivalent yeah. than people who hate his guts. And yeah. I, I think that's really fascinating because you know, if you engage with the critics and the, the adversaries, you can you can learn from that. Mm-hmm. But the people who are just kind of like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you are moving away from Bellingham mm-hmm. fairly soon, next month, sometime. Yeah, the 13th. I bought my ticket like two days ago. Ticket to where? Alaska. I'm moving back to Anchorage. For how long? I don't know. Yeah, I'm like sort of at that age where like you start to have your quarter life crisis or something. I don't know. That's what everybody your Saturn says. Saturn return. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm actually I'm gonna move back to Anchorage uh, and live in the house that my parents are selling, which is also the house that they raised me in. Um, but it'll be completely empty because they're like putting it on the market, so mm-hmm. it'll just be empty for a couple months while they're trying to sell it. So that is gonna be. A, a trip, just sort of like living in the empty shell of my childhood home. 
with my sister though, so it'll be far less lonely. And um, I think I'm probably gonna do like DoorDash or something, cause all of the jobs in Anchorage get taken in May, um, cause that's when the that's when the colleges get out. They're on the right. semester system. Um, I don't know though. I just yeah, I I think that like people from Alaska, I that's one of those things. Like people aren't generally lukewarm about Alaska. They either love it and they're like. I'm always going to go back, which is how I feel, or they are like, this is a suffocating place and I need to get out, you know? And, um, yeah, I just feel like it's time. I've been homesick for long enough. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that quarter life crisis. Yeah. I have a personal theory about that. Mm-hmm. Is, it's that, you know, as a kid, you're doing everything your parents tell you to because that literally keeps you alive. And then as you get older, you're sort of following the track that you're your parents or whoever puts you on, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're like going to school and you get your first job and whatever. And then you go to college and you're sort of doing the whole college thing. You're sort of going through that. And then you graduate college Mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, now what? Yeah. Like it's kind of like the last step in the things that are decided for you ahead of time. Yeah. It's honestly, it's like, it's such a privileged place to be. And it is also very difficult and nerve-wracking. And I think that both of those things are valid. That's what I'm starting to to come to terms with in myself. Like, it's okay that I feel scared about this, even though, like, my options are limitless. And that's also really cool. Yeah. I mean, when my mom was my age, she had, like, two children and, like, a whole bunch of other shit to deal with. And I don't even have a pet, you know? Like, <laughs> fucking... I don't have to pay for my health insurance for, like, four more years, like, you know, like, life is, life is pretty, life is pretty okay. It'll be, it'll be okay. I'll probably be back in Bellingham at some point, not to stay, but for a minute or so. Do you, do you, uh, one last question. Yeah. Do you have any, like, big artistic ideas of, like, things you would love to make or do? I do, yeah. I, I do. Well, I really would, like... Something that I really don't like about being an oil painter is that I make art that can only be bought by wealthy people because they're large oil paintings and like if I'm gonna pay myself even half of minimum wage they have to go for an amount that like I could never afford and none of my friends could ever afford you know and so then like I'm existing in sort of like these two worlds like age worlds and socioeconomic worlds and it's just like kind of I think that it's just inaccessible and I don't like it and um so I really would like to learn how to do mural painting and like figure out how to translate my style of art onto murals and like how to apply for I don't even know how to start to do that it just like is an idea that I have like a way to continue to paint and not feel like I'm just working for myself all the time um And then the bigger idea that I have is that, um, and if anybody listening to this has any kind of feedback about this specific subject, please contact me because I'm still, like, learning. Um, I was raised by, like, a group of, like, a kind of, like, my parents were lesbians and my grandmas were lesbians and all my aunties were lesbians, so I was, like, raised by a lot of lesbians. And, um, in Alaska, and it was amazing. And, um, they all... My grandma and uh, a couple of my aunties and then a couple of women that I don't know yet. Um, But they started in Alaska um, the first domestic abuse shelters in the 70s in like Fairbanks and Anchorage and Juneau. And um, I don't know all the history yet, but it just was 
really interesting thinking about that, like, um, how they had their houses were, like, safe spaces before the domestic abuse shelter was established, and then they worked there for, like, their whole life, and everybody who was working there was pretty much, like, a lesbian. Like, it was all women and, like, primarily lesbians, and, um, I just think that that's really interesting because, like, it has these kind of layers of secrecy. Like, they were all in the closet, which is secret. The location of the shelter was secret, right, for, like, security reasons. And then um, the identity of the women who were staying there was secret. So it's just, like, kind of this, like, protective cloak, which is, like, interesting to me. And also interesting, right, because there's, like... I was talking to my one auntie, Sarah Lynn, um, and she was saying that, like... In back then, like, it was like, oh, people would say, like, any woman who had a bad experience with a man would become a lesbian, and that's why there were so many lesbians working, like, in the domestic abuse sphere. And she was like, well, I mean, if every woman who had a bad experience with a man became a lesbian, then there would be, like, no straight ladies anymore. But, (laughs) which is true, right? But, (laughs) um, but then she was also saying that in Pittsburgh, it was the same thing. Like, the domestic abuse shelters down there were founded by lesbians. And so... Now, I'm really curious to find out if that is, like, a national phenomena that is, like, a piece of history that people don't know about, and, like, it has, like, really personally been a part of my life because it was my family, and, like, it's just always this kind of fact I've taken for granted, and I want to learn more about it. So, listeners? (laughs) If you know anything about the lesbian domestic abuse shelter phenomena of the 1970s, please contact me. (laughs) There... There's a book called How the Homosexual Saved Western Civilization or something like that. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, but I, I, my vague recollections of talking to friends who've read it is that it primarily focuses on um, cisgendered men who are gay. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like gay politicians and things like that. Totally. But I think we need the big, like, doorstop historical book about, like, all the awesome stuff lesbians got done. Yeah. Because lesbians get stuff done. Yeah. And they're generally, I think, um, quite humble. And that's maybe why there's, like, not a lot of knowledge about it. Yeah. So maybe that's your calling. You need to write that book. Yeah. I know. It's like, I don't really have any videography or writing skills, but this feels cool enough that I could maybe learn it. Paint a giant mural about it. Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't think you need videography or writing skills. I think you just need to want to tell that story. Yeah, totally. And I hope that you do. I hope so too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sorry, I'm so chatty. No, this is perfect. Like, (laughs) I I just like bringing my guests in and letting them go for it. Yeah, yeah. So where can listeners find your things? Um, like my art things or mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, they can go to my Instagram, which is Cecilia Lister is C-E-C-I-L-I-A-L-I-S-T-E-R. Um, or Cecilia Lister.com is my website. The Instagram is more interesting because cool. I just know how to use it better. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Strangely. This is great. <laughs> So that was my chat with Cecilia. She already gave you all her social media stuff, so go check that out. Her artwork is fantastic, and uh, you'll hear a joke from her at the end of the show. Here's a thought. Can we please stop calling writing lazy? You know what's lazy writing?
using lazy as a criticism. I've seen it more and more over the last couple of years, generally coupled with the displeasure at the direction a given television show has gone. Putting aside for a moment the strident hypocrisy of someone who does not write for a living calling someone else who does lazy, let's instead focus on the statement itself and why I dislike it so much. Saying writing is lazy is a sweeping generalization that does little to provide any concrete solutions. If you want to be critical of a work of art, or person involved in making said art, by all means, go for it. But the work of a critic is to suggest improvements, indeed to actually help the artist get better. That's at least my understanding of the purpose of the profession. Having been myself eviscerated by several morons over the years claiming that title, I am also painfully aware that the higher purpose of the calling is often ignored in favor of easy punches and catty remarks. As a teenager, I was an ardent reader of PC Gamer magazine and used to look forward to an, the almost monthly tirades by one of the reviewers against games deemed horrible. In retrospect, the fact that nothing seemed to ever rate below 80% or above 10% should have been a clue as to the reliability of their reviews. Around the time I turned 17, I met a film critic at a writing workshop, and during the Q&A, I asked him if he enjoyed running funny reviews of bad films. I was puzzled when he said that he did not. That he had always hoped every film was good and tried to go into it with an open mind. His job was to hope that everything was good, and if it wasn't, then to try to envision a way that it could be. But I digress. Criticism should be constructive, or at the very least, instructive. For instance, this is why we need better representation, or this is why having too much creative control is a problem, or this is a prime example of a miscasted actor, or this film was written by Christopher Nolan. I really struggle to understand what someone means when they say writing is lazy. Do they mean that the writer plagiarized it from someone else? If so, who? Outright plagiarism is of course lazy, but I think the theft is the bigger crime than the sloth. Are they accusing the writer of not taking chances? If that's your beef, then say so. Point out how the show went for the safe option of not killing as many characters as your bloodlust demands. I suppose I could see writing being deemed lazy if the writer keeps going back to the same bag of tricks over and over again. If an episode of your program ends with a ninja jumping out of the shadows and murdering one of your lead characters with a dozen Fruit Loops on a chunk of barbed wire, that's shocking. However, if every episode ends with a ninja, then it's no longer shocking or even interesting. We're all just waiting around for the ninja. Even South Park started letting Kenny live once the writers found the formula to be getting stale. Although, the point where they found it to be getting stale and the rest of us found it to be getting stale were sort of different points in time. But the simple mathematics of every episode doing the same thing does not always equate stagnant imaginations either. Some of the best work can be done within rigid formulas. Don't believe me? Just look at The Twilight Zone, Bloody Jack, or the works of Mozart. Heck, if you want to split hairs about this sort of thing, why not criticize all the writers who only use 26 letters? I mean, come on. If they were really creative, I suppose they would be making up new ones, like a feverish 16th century alchemist. Lest you think that I am expressing this displeasure toward those critical of works of fiction I enjoy, I just want you to point out that I find the assertion that writing is lazy to be most egregious when it is directed at things which I also dislike. Though I've matured over the years, I must admit I still enjoy a pithy takedown of a work of art I find lacking. But it must be pithy. Patton Oswalt comparing 
prequel writing George Lucas to a man who will give you rock salt when you ask for ice cream because he thinks if you like something, you must want exhaustive connection with its raw components is a stroke of genius. Comparing Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's meandering attempt at a fourth Indiana Jones movie to a sexual assault on the film's lead character, as the creators of South Park did, is not. In fact, I find it one of the few acts of writing I might actually call lazy. So where does all this lead? Look for the creativity in your criticism. Find the correct metaphors, similes, and examples. Be exacting in what you find lacking and spend a moment to think about how to correct it. And for the love of all that is celluloid, please spare a thought for how difficult it is to make any work of art. The hundreds, thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours people put into their art boggles the mind. I've worked on film sets, and frankly, the old adage that it's a miracle any film gets finished at all rings quite true. But sure, it wasn't as good as you wanted. Must be because someone was lazy. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Catfight? This 2016 film stars Sandra Oh and Anne Hesch as a pair of women with a deep and abiding hatred for one another. The first scene sees Hesch, an independent artist, working as a caterer just to scrape by rent. Her art isn't taking off the way she always hoped. As a fellow self-employed creator, I palpably felt the desperation that has driven her to do this gig. The party is being hosted by Sandra Oh's character, who, it transpires, was Hesh's nemesis in college. They have a tense interaction that plays just like you're expecting. Two New York women exchanging bon mots and getting under... under getting get, 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 I don't know why I can't say that. Getting under one another's skin. It's clear O has all the power here, but Hesh gets her digs in too. Their catty interaction breaks off and Hesh goes to smoke a cigarette in the stairwell when O appears to confront her. And then things go off the rails. I don't want to spoil it for you, but wow. I was not expecting the lengths, nay, depths, this film was prepared to go for in the pursuit of an anti-conflict message. The whole thing is one giant parody of the kinds of egos that fuel interpersonal, and by extension, international, conflicts. As I get older, I find myself drawn ever more to narratives of people desperately seeking a way to resolve a conflict and just stop fighting. See Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Matrix Revolutions for two recent examples. Sadly for Hesh and O, neither one seems able to back down, which initially is a cause for frustration in the viewer. What kind of person can't give a little? As the film goes on, though, you realize that though this pair is cartoonish, they still echo an impulse in all of us, that desire to win, no matter the cost. When I was studying dramatic performance during my third attempt at a university degree, I came across a book called Impro. The main premise of the book was that good improvisational theater, and by extension, all theater, derived its interest from changes in character status. A low-status character suddenly gaining all the power in a given situation, creates drama, or a high-status character losing it, and so on. This film really shines at that particular trick, offering several shocking reversals over the course of the story. If you don't mind brutal cinematic violence, then this darkest of black comedies might just be your thing. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week, Roll On Columbia by Woody Guthrie. This 
is actually the first folk song I have a conscious memory of. My mother sang this around the house when we were kids. There was a power outage when I was about four or five. And I asked my mom why the power was out. And she said, well, there's no electricity coming to the house. And I, you know, this sort of led to an explanation of where electricity comes from. In the region of the United States where I live, most of our electricity comes from hydroelectric dams the biggest one being Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River, uh, which is a river in southern Washington, sort of right between Washington and Oregon State. And my mom started singing this song, you know, as part of this conversation. And she couldn't quite remember all of it, but she remembered the line, Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. And, I, like, just as a child... The idea that a river made electricity was it was incredible it was just like a it was like wow and that the song has always stuck with me i i've probably heard a recording of woody guthrie singing it at some point but i've never really looked at the lyrics of this or anything like that and i just did uh today i was looking through my book of folk tunes and i found this song and I got to say, it's it's an incredibly crafted song. The amount of sort of storytelling and everything that Guthrie gets here is really fascinating. I think it was during the 1920s or 30s, something like that, Guthrie was commissioned by the U.S. government to write some songs as part of a, an anti-depression uh, program to sort of fund the arts and to drum up interest in Washington State, I guess. So Guthrie came out here and hung out and was impressed by the Columbia River and the attendant dams along it and wrote this song. So this is Roll On Columbia, Roll On. Green Douglas fir, where the waters cut through Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew Canadian Northwest Two oceans so blue It's roll on Columbia Roll on So roll on, Columbia, roll on. Other great rivers add power to you. Yakima, Snake, and Clickitat, too. Sandy, Willamette, and Hood River, too. So roll on, Columbia, roll on. Tom Jefferson's vision would not let him rest. An empire he saw in the Pacific Northwest. St. Louis and Clark, and they did the rest. So roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. So roll on, Columbia, roll on. At Bonneville now there are ships in the locks. The waters have risen and cleared all the rocks. Shiploads of plenty will steam past the docks. So roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia. 
of the river is the Grand Coulee Dam, the mightiest thing ever built by a man to run the great factories and water the land. It's roll on Columbia, roll on, roll on Columbia, roll on, roll on Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn, so roll on Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thanks again to my guest Cecilia for talking about all that awesome stuff. And thank you so much to my amazing patrons on Patreon for supporting this continuing work. I have been looking for a long time for a way to sort of unify all my various interests and also push myself to play accordion more and to play different songs on accordion, and this finally gave me sort of an excuse slash venue for that. If you have old folk song requests that you'd like to hear on the program, please let me know. You can contact me either through my Patreon at patreon.com strangely, or my preferred method of staying in touch is for you to actually send me something in the mail. So if you'd like to send a postcard or a $100 bill or a piece of creepy taxidermy to me, you can do that. All you've got to do is uh, put that thing in a box or on a postcard or whatever and mail it to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. And I will answer those questions on air on the podcast. I will talk about anything that I get sent. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that you send that along. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can do that. It's at I am strangely on Instagram and Twitter. And that's about it. Those are the only social medias I really spend any time on. If there's a way that you like to consume podcasts that you're not finding this podcast on usually, or you know of friends who like to listen to their podcasts elsewhere, please let me know. I'm still kind of getting this thing rolling, and I would love to have suggestions on how best to get it out to you folks. So anyway, that's it for this week's episode, and I'll see you all next week. Cheers. Strangely and Friends is a Herringbone Society production. Hey, uh, there's no recording of the audio of Cecilia telling the joke because, uh, I hadn't really planned for this eventuality, but the joke is entirely visual. So if you go check out my Instagram at I am strangely on Instagram, or you go to patreon.com slash strangely, I've posted video of Cecilia telling the joke. So go check that out and I hope you like it. Cheers. <laughs>